0: Welcome to Game Plan, a show about our lives at work. I'm Francesca Levy, editor of the Game Plan section at Bloomberg.com.
1: And I'm Rebecca Greenfield, a reporter at Bloomberg, where I cover workplace culture.
0: This week, we're talking about bridge burning. Everybody has the fantasy of quitting their job and leaving in a blaze of glory, telling their boss exactly what they always thought of them. I don't know, tearing up somebody else's cubicle doing something really memorable that will make the company rue the day that they treated you badly. But usually we have the good sense not to do stuff like this because we've been always taught that you don't burn bridges, right? Yeah, you never want to piss someone off that
1: maybe you'll need them for something
0: later. Right. And you never know who that person's going to be. So your workplace nemesis now who's some other office drone that you hate could be the very person that is responsible for deciding whether you get fired, at, uh, hired or fired at a future job. And yet we still hear about these examples of people doing exactly that, just doing stuff that is so deliciously awful, but is a really bad career move. And we love reading about it. Like not too long ago, there was a customer service employee at Yelp named Talia Jane who wrote, a lengthy essay on Medium about how terrible her job was and how poor her pay was. And it generated a long back and forth on the internet about whether she was an entitled millennial or whether she was completely right to stand up to the man. But the whole point is, we all got the joy of watching somebody live out our work revenge fantasies without any of the repercussions.
1: Yeah, it's so fun to read these things because it scratches that itch that we have to do these things, but then we don't actually have to do it.
0: But what happens when you burn a bridge and you don't even really know you're doing it as you're doing it? This week's show is going to be in a little bit of a different format. We're going to dedicate the whole time to exploring an incident that could have burned some major bridges. And that is a very personal story that comes from within our very own podcast team. Isn't that right, Becca? Yes,
1: I may have burned a bridge (laughs) without quite knowing that I was doing it.
0: To understand the tale of Becca's big, bad bridge burning, you need a little bit of background. So we're just going to launch you right into it. Sit back and enjoy.
1: Back in 2012, I was a blogger at the Atlantic Wire, and I wrote a post called, Who's Crazier, Bloggers or Writers? There had been an article in the New York Times about Joe Weisenthal, a blogger at the time, at the website Business Insider. The story was about how much he worked. He woke up at 4 a.m., he was always on Twitter, so much so that his wife had to tweet at him to get his attention. Even his bosses described his schedule as insane. My job at the time was to respond to the news of the day, so I wrote a post about Joe, which was mostly about the way we talked about workaholic bloggers versus other types of people who are dedicated to their jobs with the same intensity. I used Robert Caro, one of the most famous and celebrated biographers, as an example.
0: The story was also a criticism of Joe, though. It had some harsh lines. You said that it sounded like, quote, his life sucks, and that he was, quote, feeding his own ego and the page view beast that is Business Insider. It was a controversy when it went up.
1: Business Insider people, including Joe, tweeted mean things at me. But it wasn't that out of the ordinary for a day in the life of blogger me at the time. And after a day of Twitter squabbling, I moved on with my life. And I have to say, I didn't really think about the article again.
0: So three years later, you get a job at Bloomberg. And Joe Weisenthal now works here. Now you work with this person that you had burned.
1: I knew he worked at Bloomberg. There was a lot of press about it, but honestly hadn't remembered that story. I didn't even think about it when I was interviewing for the job, that it somehow might affect my chances of getting the job but it turns out that Joe remembered it.
2: I think he, was, he heard your name in a conversation about the interview process or that you had just been hired or something like that. And he was like, that's the woman who like tore me to shreds on the internet.
1: That was Aaron Rutkopf, an editor at Bloomberg who was very involved in hiring me. Not only did Joe remember, but everyone at Bloomberg had been talking about it before I started.
2: We definitely all had, like, a real big laugh. I think there was, like, a some reading out loud from your post about Joe Weisenthal. Um, not in, like, a sarcastic way, but, like, where we would read lines and then all laugh, and Joe would laugh, too.
1: I might have remained blissfully ignorant until on my second day of work, an editor here brought it up to me. He said, didn't you write a takedown of Joe Weisenthal, and now you're sitting right next to him? At that moment, I was mortified. I was brand new at this job and had already jeopardized my relationships. Did my bosses and colleagues think I was this terrible person? Even worse, I had made a tactical error and offended someone I was going to work with.
2: Basically, the first time that he heard your name come up as like she's coming to work here, he was like, I have to ask her about that or I don't remember. I don't remember how it came up, but just that yeah, as soon as he found out you were working here, that that conversation started again.
1: That was Dashiell Bennett, a reporter at Bloomberg who works with Joe and who I'd also worked with at The Atlantic Wire. If Joe remembered this story three years later, I must have really hurt him.
2: It kind of painted him as a crazy person a little bit, that like, and that was but that in the, that craziness was his appeal. It made a big deal about how little sleep he got and how he like had carved out this niche as this guy who just gets up super early in the morning and beats everybody at everything just because he's never sleeping. And you know, and there was a big picture, and the, the big main picture was like a stage photo of like him and his wife in bed, and she's asleep, and he's awake on his laptop, and that was kind of a big deal. So it wasn't, you know, I I it was totally fair based on what the story was about, and and I also think that like everyone knows that you know when you get featured in the New York Times uh, uh, about anything, you know, it becomes really hard to control what the response or the message of that story is going to be.
0: So Becca had potentially burned a bridge and didn't even realize it. Joe could have blocked her hiring at worst, or at the very least, he could have ruined her reputation at work before she even started the job. In the
1: end, I think everything turned out okay, Or did it?
0: So our guest today is one of our colleagues at Bloomberg, Joe Weisenthal, a markets editor and co-host of the Odd Lots podcast. And for a while, the center of some of Rebecca's most tense moments. <laughs>
3: um, thanks for having me. I'm, first of all, I'm really excited to be on the other side. You know, normally I'm interviewing when we do the podcast, so it's always fun to be a guest. So thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for talking yeah, to us. Thanks for coming on. Well, I want to know about how you felt when you read the article that Rebecca wrote.
3: So I was, first of all, I was, I was mostly amused and flattered. I was not, like, upset or, like, hurt or anything like that. I was – so when that New York Times article about myself came out, you know, obviously, like, any sort of narcissist, I was seeing uh, what people said about it. And there were various people who said nice things, and some people were making fun of me because the article made me sound kind of crazy. But that one, Rebecca's, was, like, the only one that, like, really, like, went after me. And – the reason why I wasn't upset or, like, that it, I wasn't, like, hurt or I, it didn't, like, sting particularly is because the premise of the article was that I wasn't as talented as, like, the most talented biographer of all time, which I thought just <laughs> seemed like – so I was, like, really, like, <laughs> amused by, like, the premise that is, like, here's this person who's widely regarded to be, like, the LBJ's biographer, Robert Caro, right? right? Yeah. Like, that was how the article was set up. And it's, like, yeah – I, guilty. I'm not <laughs> as so on any level. Well,
1: I have gone back and read the article, and it kind of has two points to it, which kind of shows it was kind of a bad, a bad piece. <laughs> but it was good in some ways. But the one piece was kind of saying that the media treats bloggers unfairly by saying that like portraying you as some, mm. like a workaholic, right? And but like in a bad way. But when Robert Kerr is a workaholic, it's a good thing. And so I kind of tried to make mm. that point. But then I was like, but. But why do we think Joe's brand of workaholicism is bad? It's because what he's doing is dumb, basically, is what yeah. I
3: said. Yeah, I th- I guess that's right. Like, I mean, um, it's been a long time since I've read it. So there was one thought, which is that the premise of the piece was such like felt like it was set up in a way that like, of course, I couldn't win, so I wasn't too bothered. But then and I this is gonna sound really sanctimonious. And obnoxious, and everything like that, but then my other thought, and again, this is gonna I kind of felt sorry for you that you wrote that because my thought was like i don't know like who edited this or like thought it was a good idea proposed <laughs> no. and i I guess I just felt like this struck me as something clearly regrettable to write, and <sighs> yeah, and I, that's fine like i've wrote I've written so many things in my life when I was younger that are. Worse or as regrettable, like everyone does it, but you always sort of hope like that you know sometimes someone catches them and say like this isn't really very like good piece or like a good idea. And sometimes editors do that, and sometimes they don't. And I've been on both sides because I've written some things or like oh I wish someone had said don't write this. Did you feel bad because you felt like oh this inexperienced writer is going to get some backlash now, or
0: just because you thought oh this person wrote a thing that isn't very Good, or I, or you know, it wasn't, is it more? So, you know, what it, it was
3: more, I didn't like think there was going to be any back, particular backlash, and there wasn't. I mean, I don't know, maybe some, there I, was
1: people, not backlash, but some, your business inside our buddies, well, yeah. tweeted mean things out, yeah. Me. Well,
3: that's because you know, it's a team sport, so that's, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I didn't no I didn't think there was going to be any backlash. Actually, my thought more specifically was it's, um, kind of unfortunate that people and I didn't know anything about you and I didn't know like where you were in your career but I figured you're sort of early in your career which is I was yeah
1: I was I'm pretty sure 24 right maybe 25
3: and so my thought was I just sort of thought it was a little unfortunate someone like early in their career who like you know in this business like makes sense like yeah
1: yeah I so yeah I was writing stuff not like and so this, I was, but sorry, yeah. yeah, I was writing things takes before the word take was even yeah, a yeah, word. Yeah, before
3: right, people didn't talk about hot takes. Yeah, it was what not.
1: Yeah, but I was doing this just constantly all day, churning things out, and I was just really unhappy in my job, and definitely like projecting a little bit through this. Mm. Where I was, uh, there's a so there are a couple pretty mean lines in here that I regret more than anything Do you else. Yeah, read them? so one of them <laughs> is talking about how the Times article portrayed you as not working a normal schedule at all. And I said, still, we we feel bad for Wisenthal. It sounds like his life sucks.
3: Oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess that is kind of mean.
1: <laughs> and honestly, it was because I didn't have a life that was that different. You know, I wasn't waking up at like 4 a.m. and I wasn't
3: yeah.
1: on Twitter Constantly right. because I didn't want to be, but I felt like I, I was going in that direction, and I didn't. I thought I thought my life kind of sucked, and yeah. But you, like it seems like your you were the only yeah. success Although, story. You know so. what's funny?
3: You know, in retrospect, now I consider myself an old man, and I have kids. <laughs> and, or I have one kid I don't have kids I have yeah. one but I'm, I'm and a you're parent like not now. really now and old. now like I think back and it's like oh, did that kind of suck maybe it did like maybe you were right maybe you yeah. were like at the time I mean saying oh it sounds like his life sucks is a little mean but now that I have some perspective on life and slightly more semblance of a work life balance, maybe that was maybe that was actually one of the better lines. Yeah, maybe yeah. one that actually maybe that one will stand the test of time.
1: Yeah. Well I, I think I saw you as kind of the success story of what I was
0: doing. And Basically really, Joe sense. was doing what you were doing, but we so getting words, rewarded for it and you weren't.
3: In other words, if this is success, then what is even the point? Yeah. In other it words, was like if, 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 if the in other words, if the person who's really like thriving in this environment has to wake up at four in the morning and is online all the time and doesn't have a life and the article i mean i thought there were aspects of it that unfair but there were details in the article that made my life seem worse than it was like it said like in oh, the new yes. york times article. yeah so it said that it was like there were boxes that were unopened which portrayed me as
1: like completely not in the yeah world. which is
3: just not maybe there was like one box that in the corner of my there were details that i thought played up the degree to which i didn't have a life more than perhaps was a little bit fair but no i i mean i think actually your the way you say that makes sense that if that's success then what is even the yeah. point like why go down that path to was
0: begin that with? the harshest line in the no story, there's or? one
1: other one line that i regret more than it sounds like his life sucks which is the uh, close to the kicker so i'm talking about how robert caro has a noble cause so oh, yeah, that's why we like him. yeah but your cause, I say, uh, Wisenthal's cause is beating his own ego oh, yeah. and the page view beast that is Business Insider.
3: So when I going back to as you say, I, I think actually the premise of your piece, as you said before, that why does the media treat someone like Robert Cairo? differently than someone who's in blogging or why is workaholism seem really um noble in caro's case that's actually interesting but i right. remember that because that's that like was from your just sort of like yeah um yeah you know again i wasn't like offended i wasn't like this is really mean i was more like well this is just but, sort of pointless but so. you must
0: have felt i mean like how how often did you come in for criticism like that
3: well okay or, or do you so, well, especially when I was at Business Insider, we got the criticism that like we're nothing but hungry for page views all the time, which is fair and unfair. So fair in the fact that we're we st- were a startup, and startups never have a lot of money, and they have very little margin for error. And one of the ways that you get more money is growing traffic, which a allows you to sell more ads, and b growing traffic theoretically allows you to raise more money. So you know, in retrospect, I think while we got a lot of criticism for it, the fact that we were really good at growing traffic and obsessed with it is one reason why we survived. I mean,
1: yeah. Well, so to mind you, I was also very much in that right. world, constantly looking at yeah. chart beat analytics to see my own traffic and under a ton of pressure. I, so again, it was really I think projecting.
3: The, the part that I was upset about, and I bet that I'm not alone, and because I think that. This criticism has been leveled at all. Everyone still to this day of digital media startups is that I was really proud of what we were accomplishing, traffic aside. I was proud of the audience we were reaching. I was proud of like when I knew like more and more people in finance and tech were reading it. People who were high up and sophisticated were reaching out and they liked it.
1: Yeah. So, okay. So you say that you weren't that stung by it, but so to be honest with you, i Completely forgot about it When I found out what I I was working here I definitely knew You worked here I knew who you were But I just didn't think Oh I wrote this mean thing About this person Like One they might prevent me From getting this job Which should have been A concern But two That I have to work With this person Who I offended But you remembered it
3: Yeah well it was One of these things I remembered the name So uh, Rebecca Greenfield That's me But I did not Like immediately Click why I remembered the name
0: so wait, so let's so we've skipped ahead yeah. in time, and okay. now you, now Joe, college. have discovered that Becca has been hired, or yes. or is this, about to be hired. This yeah, is it's three, about to be hired. Three years later. I so think.
3: this was yeah, it was probably about three years later. It was it was December twenty,
1: uh, April oh. 2015. Okay,
3: so it was early on. I had only been at Bloomberg for a few months, and there was this big effort, and it was still ongoing. But at the time, there was a lot more hiring on the digital side. And someone I forget who it was, but one of my colleagues, like, I were hiring uh, Rebecca Greenfield, and the name definitely like jumped out. I was like, that name is really familiar. Then suddenly the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, I know where I know that name from. She wrote a really mean thing about me one time. So
0: then but, you probably googled her. And thing. then I
3: googled. I said like googled like Rebecca Greenfield, Wire, Wisenthal, and it came up. But I, I, you know, as soon as I, uh, I. You know, I could probably search our uh, IB records and find like I was probably like very amusing. I'm like, oh, well, this should make for an amusing, yeah. awkward. What was the first
0: incident. thing that you did, or the first person you? Oh, I don't know. Well,
3: I was uh, Dash, who was here on earlier on the show. Right? He was already working here,
1: and I had worked with him. Yeah,
3: and you had worked with him. So I was like, oh, this is. I, he was probably who I talked about at first too. and then I. Pointed it out to a few people, but it was never in like a malicious way or like, oh, we can't hire or anything like that. I was like, oh, this is going to be pretty funny.
0: And you weren't embarrassed, <laughs> you weren't like concerned about other people reading the article. And, no, and no,
3: not at all. You are
0: happy to have everybody laugh
3: about it. Yeah, I was like, oh, this is funny.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, Dash told me you w- couldn't stop talking about it. And how I found out was just so far removed from. You and the people I was directly working with, I was under the impression that everybody knew about it, and I, I think that's true. That oh, probably because
3: I was—I re- really did get a kick out of it.
1: But so one thing we, Francesca, and I have been talking about was that if you had found out before I had been hired, would you have no, used it against me?
3: Hundred percent not. There's no chance I would have.
1: I mean, that's just lucky, right? Someone else may have, right? Yeah. So then, so then I am freaking out. It's working. Like I am just. This is my second or third day in the office I am just like everyone's impression of me is this article and I didn't now I
3: feel kind of bad because I didn't mean (laughs) to like I didn't you know now like hearing it from your perspective I like went around and told everyone about this article just because I was so amused but and you I can I, I can sure I didn't put myself in your shoes that would make a pretty awkward like I can say
0: that that was not the prevailing like everybody yeah. that wasn't the thing everybody was running around talking about. I think there was like an undercurrent of people knowing about it, but that there was some distance between it getting around that you had been hired and that this article had been written and you, know, you actually starting right. It so it didn't yeah. feel like the most current thing about you. I'd also heard a lot of good things about you, yeah. so
1: so, but I. Consulted some people and decided that the best thing to do was just immediately address it and just just confront you in person. I thought yeah. that that was would maybe like put you a little bit off guard. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I came up to you and hid behind a lot of cliches and was like, "We need to like address the elephant in the room and like bury <laughs> the hatchet." And I that went well, right? I think it went really well. What do you remember about it, Joe?
3: Like- no, I remember like Rebecca, obviously uncomfortable or embarrassed. So, um, but I did actually, I thought that was, um, I can remember thinking that that was well handled.
0: Hmm,
1: cool. So, yeah, so we're, we kind of wanted to talk about burning bridges, and we all do things in our careers yeah, totally. that can eventually come back to us. But this scenario worked out for me. Yeah. It's just inevitable that we'll all burn
0: bridges yeah, at of some course. point, basically. Well, there, there's an argument that it, it put your name in Joe's head. It's true. <laughs> Maybe that even helped you a little. Yeah, I mean that was the right the point of my well, job at that time. Yeah, it
3: was, and you know I was um I've written things. You know I wrote a lot about economics and stuff like that for a long time, and I like attacked economists who are a hundred times smarter than I was and insinuated they were stupid. This is you know when I was like just beginning because I thought that's what you had to do to make a name for yourself and things that seemed self evident to me. Why isn't it self evident to this Nobel Prize winner or whatever? And of course I was obviously wrong. Like 100% of the times. But I think it's good. I think it's good to make mistakes. And it's good to have really bad ones that hopefully don't destroy your career, but that help you slow down and help you. It's like, you know, that was really stupid and like get chastened a bit and have your ego um, kept in check a little bit. Like from time to time, it's probably a good thing to have happen.
0: I think that's probably a good place to, to finish up. Do either of you feel like there's anything left unsaid? Do you need to hug it out?
3: <laughs> we could hug it I out. We can yeah, hug it but, out. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Thanks so much for having me. It was great chatting me, with both and of and you. Thank you
3: out. very much for having me out.
0: And now it's time to bring you one of my favorite segments, if not my favorite segment ever, Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes, Half-Baked Takes is where we present opinions that, demand a platform, but are not thoughtful or well-researched enough to justify a news story.
1: What is your take this week? Half take.
0: Half okay. Half take. This is one that I've floated by a few people and I'm beginning to understand it's very controversial. This is a behavior that I that I do. And if I, if I had to give it a headline, it would be really like revolving doors are the worst. But let me back up a little. I have a fear of revolving doors I wouldn't call it a phobia because I can go through them so it's not like a paralyzing fear are you
1: scared you're gonna get like, I stuck between them you the know,
0: experience stuck... it it feels most akin to a medieval torture device like the iron maiden which is where you step inside this thing and it just closes it sounds horrifying. it closes in on <laughs> you maiden. and then You're basically in like a standing coffin and spikes sort of move in on you closer and closer. Like I feel like there's so much potential to get wedged into a revolving door. And the reason is because everybody's moving at their own preferred speed in the little, Mm -hmm. you know, the little pie slices of the revolving door. Right. So I do my best to avoid revolving doors if I can but in many buildings like ours the alternative is a very heavy door. Yeah, they do that on
1: purpose. Yeah,
0: they want you to use a revolving door because they it's good think for that it's and I mean, cooling. Yeah, I mean I would like to probably it helps take up the environment. Up, You're a monster. Go I on. I mean I'd like to see the real science on that because <laughs> I'm not sure that they're that great for the environment. But anyway. I'll send
1: you some fully baked takes on that.
0: So, people in my mind are being very rude when they go through the revolving door at full force and keep pushing the bar that moves the door ahead long after they have made the door move enough that they can get into the building so if i'm behind somebody like that and i can feel them moving too fast and i know that i'm going to be in a situation where i will be scared that i will get tripped by the door or stuck in the door i will place my hands on the bar behind them and pull that is so mean it's not mean
1: i they're being mean i'm protecting myself has anybody ever reacted
0: well, I can only see the back of their head.
1: I just I mean, cuz you're scared of getting stuck. Imagine what you're doing to them.
0: All I'm doing is slowing them down and giving them ample time to exit the revolving door. So you're
1: you're helping them. I'm
0: helping. They're in no danger.
1: <laughs> that I'm is preserving bold.
0: the safety of of me and the people around me. Wow, that I don't even know if that's a half-baked
1: take or just a behavior.
0: I mean, it's basically <laughs> like it's basically the most passive aggressive thing.
1: It's aggressive.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of passive-aggressive because it people is. don't really know what's happening when it's happening to them, probably. Like, no one's ever done it to me, so I don't know exactly what I'm it feels like. I'm going to do it to you. Yeah, if you see me go in the revolving door and you're, you get right behind me, if you get a chance, do it, and then I'll tell you if it's really jarring. But I, I think it's for the greater good, and I, I would hope that people would be trained out of their aggressive revolving door behavior by it, but also I you know it's it's really not helping anybody, and I should probably stop. What's your half big take?
1: (laughs) So mine is also workplace transportation related. Okay. If I had to give it a headline, I would say chivalry is dead in the elevator and I'm into it. It should be. (laughs) Chivalry needs to die in the elevator. So we work in a building with a lot of people, um, a lot of men. Of the male persuasion. And often you get in a packed elevator and these men will stand when you are getting off the elevator stand at the elevator doors and like hold it open for you i hate this and there's so much congestion that happens because yeah. of it it's not like they're actually even physically holding a door like a sensor makes the door stay open or closed
0: well it's it's not even about holding the door right it's about like they will stop and allow a woman to get on or off first, which creates an incredible amount of congestion, especially if the woman's in the back of the elevator exactly
1: i'm not I'm not sure where this practice came from. I'm also weirded out by the idea of chivalry for my
0: coworkers well and i'm i'm i mean it's a it's a generalization and an assumption, but I'm fairly sure that there are plenty of other areas of these people's lives. Where they're not going this far out of their way to be chivalrous, and so it seems like kind of yeah. a performance. Oh
1: my god, you're so right.
0: Like they're so, getting the the next thing they're doing after getting off the elevator is getting onto the subway, and you know that they're not uh, standing around, so many times you know, I've been, holding like, out their jacket off. to cover puddles yeah. for women in the subway. I mean, it's no, it's a no holds barred, every man for themselves situation than in the subway. So it seems like you're doing this thing in the elevator to show your politeness or yeah. whatever but really it's just like it makes getting off the elevator and then as the woman it's really awkward because everyone's standing to the side and yeah i in this I've been sort been of rude weird... about it I've, I've
1: audibly said you can go like I just I just have no patience so but I what now we sound
0: like we're being ungrateful for people no, well, doing so polite I, thing no, for us so
1: I'm you know somebody male or female wants to hold a door open for me that is a nice thing to do that does is actually kind. It, it saves me yes. whatever some effort. It's not disruptive to the people around me. It's just the elevator chivalry just makes there's no there's no place for it in the
0: workplace. Traffic flow over gender-based politeness. That's right. And this has been Half Baked Takes. Half Baked Takes. Takes. Thank you everybody for listening. For more from us, I am on Twitter as at Francesca Today. Our guest today, Joe Weisenthal, is at The Stalwart. And I'm at RZ Greenfield. See you next week.
1: My job at the time was to respond to the news of the day. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the news of the. I know, night. I know. I I also noted my <laughs> emphasis. I was like, oh. Sh-.